Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and haints hidden in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobick. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. I have another wonderful interview for you this month. It's a bit of a long one, so I'm going to keep the intro short. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Cassandra Pfeiffer this month. It was an excellent conversation about folklore, folk groups, in-group, out-group, third culture, individuals, inclusivity, understanding, education, acceptance, things like that, and just generally nerding out about folklore stuff, which I rarely get to do. And just a quick bit of housekeeping before the interview, I have started a coffee page. That's ko-fi.com slash appfolklorepod. I figure if anyone wants to support the show, I have had a couple of questions about it here and there, you can do so, and that's the link right there. Again, ko-fi.com slash appfolklorepod. If you do donate, let me know. I'll thank you on the show, and hopefully we get to start a little conversation over there. And without any further delay, here is my interview with Dr. Cassandra Pfeiffer. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cassandra Pfeiffer. She is a uh, professor at Mid Plains Community College in Nebraska, which is a Midwest state and not a Plains state. (laughs) Uh, So welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure. So for those uh, who are familiar with Mark Norman, friend of the show, Mark Norman, I attended uh, Dr. Pfeiffer's presentation, what was it, like a week or two ago Mm -hmm. on folk groups. I'm not sure if it's available to the public, but, uh, you know, I'd say throw in five pounds and buy the lecture. It's absolutely worth it. And as I was saying before I hit record here, the presentation was wonderful because it left me asking more questions and wanting to pursue those answers, which means that the educator presenter had done its job. And so that's why I asked her here today to uh, ask all those questions. Firstly, who are you? What do you do? Where have you been? And what are your uh, pursuits in life? Ah, Well, I am Cassandra Pfeiffer. I grew up in North Central Illinois, a little town called Byron, Illinois. Um, If anyone's familiar with the Rockford area. That's where I'm from. It Rockford, uh, we call it the Detroit of Illinois. Uh, it was a factory town and no longer a factory town and all the things that happened with that. Um, but that's where I grew up and I attended Northern Illinois University, did a study abroad program in Oxford, and then just fell, fell, fell in love with England. And I thought, I want to do my master's degree. So I looked into different programs and just Figured I'd like see what happened and applied to the University of Essex in Colchester and got accepted there, lived there for a year, um, got to do all the travel that Ryanair in England allows you to do, which was amazing. And then came back from there, broke, <laughs> worked in insurance for four years. I called that my office cage. And just wanted to get back to school, wanted to get back to school, wanted to get back to school and ended up applying to PhD programs and landed at the University of Louisiana in Lafayette, which is in South Louisiana. Lived there for seven years, finished my PhD in 2019. And then when that chapter in Louisiana was about over, a job opportunity came up in Nebraska and then I applied and landed here. So I've been kind of traveling all over the place and teaching intro to folklore, teaching American literature, and then teaching composition classes, which is like the bread and butter of the community college teaching. So that's the primary thing I teach is essay writing. But in the folk group lecture, a lot of the stuff I talked about with social media, that that all of that research came out of my composition classes that I teach, the materials I use in those classes. So there's a little bit of overlap between the essay writing, because I use a media literacy and social media theme in there. And I see so much in terms of folk group dynamics when I'm studying the way in which social media is designed 
and how people interact with each other on social media. So it was that lecture was super interesting to develop because like, oh, wow. So often we think about composition as the class we have to teach. And it's become so useful in enhancing what I'm doing with folk mm -hmm. groups that it became really cool. Um, yeah, because it was like ret, ret comp when mm -hmm. I was in grad school and social media wasn't a thing. Yes, I'm that old. And we had uh, MySpace, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, and yeah, now that social media is all that there is to care about in the world, it's very fascinating to me to think of how that could work in, I mean, I, I kind of see it but yeah it seems <laughs> strange but fascinating yeah yeah and folklore studies i mean they're they, they mentioned the digital folklore podcast or mark mentioned the digital folklore mm -hmm. podcast folklore studies is so interested in the internet and folklore on the internet and how folklore gets transmitted on the internet but I, it is also really interesting to think about the way in which the algorithms are presenting information to us that makes you think okay, but what kind of folklore are we actually seeing? Um, are we seeing folklore that is helping us broaden our horizons? Are we seeing folklore that helps us relate to each other and learn about each other in cool ways? Or are we seeing folklore that is making us more divided? Because that's kind of the social media debate is, is social media polarizing us more. And so I think that that's such a cool and interesting and then sometimes troubling thing to think yeah. about. We probably should talk first about what is folklore that's the big question mm -hmm. and i did do my first episode was titled what is folklore but i thought i uh, since i have a professional would pass the question off to you mm -hmm. to give folks who are thinking like how is social media folklore memes are folklore what are you talking about mm -hmm. yeah so folklore that i utilize a lot of lynn mcneil's stuff because she does an amazing job defining folklore um so i make use of her definitions of folklore she had i'm not going to be able to quote it verbatim but she's got this great definition that allows me to put a list on the board of characteristics of folklore because one of the temptations of defining folklore is you just create a list of what folklore is and what folklore isn't and so i take the characteristics which is folklore is informal so it's uh, transmitted by word of mouth or observation. Folklore is traditional and it's dynamic in that the things that are shared have things that remain consistent and but also things that change because it's ever evolving. But really the the main if I were to create a definition or to have a succinct definition, it would be folklore is informal, creative, cultural expressions. Wonderful. See now you know. And uh <laughs> Folklore Rules is one of the books that I've referenced before by uh, Dr. McNeil, Lynn McNeil. If anyone wants a very quick and informative read, I think it's like 96 pages. Yeah. Super it's short, but so, so accessibly. Yeah. Yeah. And even yeah, for someone who loves this, she actually uh, addresses the whole, as we were talking before uh, the show, the armchair folklorist, the idea of the academic folklorist versus the boots on the ground folklorist. Mm-hmm. So you, the, the lecture that you did for Mark Norman on the Folklore Podcast lecture series was titled, oh, I've forgotten, but yeah, you go right ahead since you uh, did it. It. Was, <laughs> it was Folk Groups and the Lore That Divides and Binds Them. Yeah. And it was exploring what folk, folk groups are and then really thinking about how folklore can both work to bring groups together. It can be the source of social solidarity and unification. And it makes people feel like they have a space in which they belong, which they're seen, which they feel like they're heard, they feel like they're represented. But it, there's also this very darker si dark side of folklore in which folklore is super divisive and folklore, folklore can pit groups against each other and be a source of a lot of conflict and a lot of hatred and fear. So it was kind of working to explore that like tightrope walk that can happen with folklore studies. I, I look into... Uh, medieval Icelandic folklore as well and law because mm -hmm. I got nothing to do. So, <laughs> um, but the idea of uh, white supremacist groups using runic symbols mm -hmm. is very much in uh, that folk group using symbols to, to express and carry on that meme, like become a symbol of white supremacy to the point that I had decals on the back of my car and then saw one of those things being mm -hmm. used. And I was like, that's coming off. I didn't yep. mean it to be in any way, shape or form. I just like mm -hmm. medieval Scandinavian Icelandic studies. 
but I had to take it off because I didn't want to be part of that group mm-hmm. or, or misidentified. Um, yeah. All, yeah. All I mean, here. it's the evolution that that folklore and that mythology has taken is definitely been used or I guess appropriated in a way that mm-hmm. works to push forward a set of values that is so, so, so harmful. And then, yeah, for people who have interest in that, in that lore and that mythology, it becomes like, Oh God, I don't want to be associated with that. Um, And it's really unfortunate because that's not really where it started. Right. Right. Dr. Matthias Nordvig um, did a podcast, Nordic mythology podcast. And his whole thing was uh, with Daniel Farron who owns horns of Odin, but their whole thing was, we are going to explain things academically and historically to get rid of those uh, negative mm-hmm. uh, connotations of whatever. Like, let's get educated here, folks, first and foremost, so mm-hmm. you're not spreading into those those groups. So uh, negativity aside, since we, we want to have fun, indeed, <laughs> nerding out. I mean, it makes sense. You can't have you can't have good without bad. You can't have light without dark. Mm-hmm. So folklore, and I addressed this in my first episode too, there are bad things in folk. Folklore has a dark side. It's because of the, as a folklore researcher or a folklorist, you cannot be biased. You have to look at all sides, every angle of whatever folk group, culture, practice, belief is to understand what it is, the transmission of it, its historical roots, if there are any and how it moves forward. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, there are bad apples in, in the basket. But since we are both folklore nerds, I thought I'd move into, yeah, how did you get to be into folklore? Mm-hmm. Because I think that's a group, folk group thing that we can kind of move into our conversation. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't, I didn't take any folklore classes in school. Oh, ooh, no, I did. I took a mythology <sighs> class in high school. And so that was, and that's actually something that you see a lot is folklore and mythology kind of get like smooshed together. And it's like, but mythology is folklore. So, but, so I took mythology classes in high school and then my mom, she always had folklore books just around the house. She had mythology books, folktale books. She had all these different, different types of folklore. So it was just like around me all the time when I was growing up, but I didn't start studying folklore until my master's program. And I took a class in Caribbean literature and discovered this author and the, my professor there, uh, Maria Christina Fumagalli. She's fantastic. And I credit her for getting me into folklore studies because I read Patrick Shamwazo and just fell in love with his writing. And it, I mean, it was his writing in translation. So I was, my mind was just blown. He was writing in, in French, but he was also writing in Creole. And then the translation tried to like balance the work there, but his writing engages a lot with oral tradition. And so my master's thesis ended up being studying Patrick Shamazo, Zora Neale Hurston and oral tradition. And how can oral tradition be represented in text? And is it possible? And you see writers doing it. You see writers attempting to do it all the time. And so then that led me into my PhD programs, which when I was looking for PhD programs, I was looking specifically for English departments that had folklore. And so I ended up at University of Louisiana Lafayette, and they had an amazing folklore specialty there that I could engage with and ended up staying with my oral tradition focus and studied Puritan conversion narratives at through the oral traditional lens. So even though these stories are primarily text based they still the genre still transforms in a way that's not unlike oral tradition because the puritans would have people perform their conversions and they would have native americans perform their conversions or indigenous peoples and perform their conversions and so that was kind of the work that i was doing there so i stuck in i stuck with oral traditional theory and engaging in that and then started teaching intro to folklore and just uh, just fell in love with it it's my favorite class to teach thousand percent by far it's my favorite class to teach I love it so much and my interview for mid flames in my the back of my head I was like would you stop talking about your folklore class they don't have a folklore (laughs) class stop talking about folklore because you're going to a college that doesn't currently offer folklore um but one of the people on the search committee like amazingly was like so would you be able to teach folklore because it sounds super interesting and then they were like yeah she could totally she could totally propose it and then so they've been 
fantastic in letting me be like, but I want to teach intro to folklore and here's why, because students love it and I love it and it's the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and they're, why do we love it? What I mean, is we, it about it for you? Student, students see themselves in it, right? Like they are using the analytical skills that we're trying to teach in a literature class. They're using a lot of those analytical skills but they're using it in a way or they're analyzing things that they recognize and that they experience and that they live. They become like their eyes perk up when they're like, oh, look at all of these amazing creative things that are around me all day, every day that I never thought of having this deep, deep meaning, this deep personal meaning to me that can go back so far down my family line and so far down my cultural lineage it and like they, they just they see themselves in it so much faster than they do maybe in other classes that they teach because you live folklore every day every yeah. day you experience some form of folklore and a lot of people don't realize that what we were talking before like recipes or folklore memes on the internet or folklore mm -hmm. it's not just ghost stories and old wives tales which is yeah. a lot what what people think it's we throw, you know, pinch of salt over your shoulder, you knock on wood. Yes, you are right, but that is not just mm -hmm. what folklore is. Yeah, it's not the only thing. Like... For me, it was, uh, once again, uh, Mark Norman's episode on, I think it was Apple Folklore, the apple of your eye. Um, <laughs> but whatever his apple of your eye ep uh, episode was, it was so in-depth, and that's what sparked it for me. Mm -hmm. Where I was like, I've been looking at apples the wrong way my entire <laughs> life. And of course, there's wassailing and the idea of paying respect to the apple tree uh, and then having a background in brewing, the idea of making the cider traditionally, which I love. There, there's things that that brewers and, and, and cider makers will do as they're making things to, I don't want to say bless, but it's a, a traditional like habit. Mm -hmm. But there, in, in that episode, he describes it and then further episodes about... Um, was sailing from Joe Hickey Hall at Modern Ferry Sightings podcast talks about that as well. It was just mind blowing for me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that idea, and and I'm assuming too with the students when you discuss folk groups that they don't realize is it one of those uh, two mind blowing moments for your students when they mm -hmm. realize like, oh, this this is a folk group. I'm in a folk group, mm -hmm. and it's not yeah, like cottage core kind of folk group. It's like a <laughs> Yeah, like so every space that every like group that I find myself in, even if it's just two people, we're a folk group. Oh, interesting. And then they start to think about what things do we do that hold meaning that we don't think necessarily like we just do it. We don't think about what we're really expressing when we do these things. Um, I have my students do a collection assignment and one of them this past semester, she interviewed her uncle who was in, oh gosh, what branch of the military was it? I'm not going to remember which branch of the military he was in, but his part of his, what he did was he was diffusing bombs. Like that was what his little unit was doing. And she like came to the realization that like one of the traditional conversations they would have in his unit was they would all sh like go around and share which body part they'd want to lose first. And wow. like, it would become this like rip roaring, like they'd be laughing and making jokes as they're like ordering out. Well, well, I would want to lose maybe my left hand first. And then, because I could live without my left hand, but can't live without my right hand or like all this, like they figuring out which one would be mm -hmm. the best possible body part to lose first. And so she interviewed him and she created this, she wrote this amazing essay. And I like immediately asked her, can I use this as a sample in future classes? Because it was such a good example of conversations that we have and that we have over and over again, because I mean, folklore is something that's repeated over, over time. And that's right. where we get the traditional dynamic elements. And so it's a conversation that happens so frequently that it does become traditional. And then she's thinking about, but why are they doing it all the time? And, you know, it's a way of like dealing with the stress, dealing with mm -hmm. the fear, dealing with the discomfort of this could actually happen to you. It's and then gallows it also, humor, essentially. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it also bonds the group together and that like shared that shared discomfort that they have. And so it, she just, it was, she did such a good job with that paper. And it's one of those things, it's a really good example of something that's just so full of meaning and so full of just bonding people together. When you're living it, it just feels like another day, mm -hmm. right? Like, this is just a fun conversation we're having that's just chock full of so much good stuff. So that idea, I'd like to run with that idea of 
bringing groups together and inclusivity. So a lot of what I hope to achieve on my show is to help folks who don't know Appalachia or have a certain stereotype or a stereotypical belief of what Appalachia is or should be mm-hmm. to show the diversity of the region. And as we were talking before, the idea of the in-group, out-group. And one of the questions I don't think I got to ask you during the Q&A, but we did discuss before, was the idea of the in-group, out-group in Appalachia. And it is true, I've experienced it myself, of folks who are not from around here have to earn respect And the folks are always nice. They will invite you in for dinner. They will tell you what, which way to go down the road and where you're trying to go to this farm or that store or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they, they are nicest pie folks. They're ended up being uh, friends when I, I used to go back and visit certain towns uh, that I haven't been back to for a while. And I see them and I say hello and everybody recognizes me, but there is that stereotype of the in-group out-group bias. I have it in my hometown right here in this little country farm town. Can these folk groups or do these folk groups, like say someone who has a podcast who doesn't live in Appalachia, but appreciates and loves the culture and the history and the folklore, can we share or do we share certain things within certain folk groups that could transcend the in-group, out-group bias? How does that work? Yeah. It's so interesting because you see... And it's hard to, like, there are so many groups that it's hard to pinpoint the exact moment that you're welcomed into the fold. But then there's other groups, I mean, hazing in fraternities comes to the immediate example, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there are specific rituals that are like, you are now one of us. We have to do this specific thing. And those can be, like, amazing, wonderful things. They can also be, like, very dangerous, you know, all of the hazing. Literally deadly. Yeah, exactly. But that speaks a lot to the power of that insider-outsider dynamic is that when you're an outsider, people on the inside don't quite know what to do with you. But there is space for a moment when you become part of it. But when we have groups like, I mean, regional groups like in Appalachia, and there's not a specific ritual, then it becomes a lot more difficult in terms of whether or not like identifying the moment when you're become part of that group. You know what I mean? I tend to use humor talking to anybody. I tend to crack a joke to lighten the mood to show that, Hey, he's not so bad after all. He's not Mm -hmm. one of some arrogant, ignorant city boy, ding dong, even though I live Mm -hmm. in the country, but whatever for me, it's, it's usually humor for that transition. Yeah. And showing the group that I am not posing a threat to you, or I'm not coming into this space with the idea of bringing my divisive and stereotypes with me. I'm coming into this space to be with you, to learn from you, to be part of what you're doing. And so I certainly think that it's possible, but it's so, I mean, there's so many different questions of that revolve around it with, I mean, different prejudices people have, just ideas of safety that people have when they're in their different there are different space, cultural spaces that are important to them. They don't want to feel like they're being judged by the outsider. And I don't have a good answer for like when it happens. Sure. It's just, yeah. It's, some, it's, it's more of a feeling mm-hmm. that you have. It's a, it's a, a little glint in the eye where you're like, oh, okay, you're, you're good. You're all right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I feel, it, I, I do get that a lot too, because I'm 6'4", 240. I've got like, gauges in my ear i have tattoos on my arm so when i go into when i when i first moved to my small town here when i went to the local grocery store i knew i was going to get watched mm-hmm. because i don't look familiar i'm huge compared to everybody else like i stand out in a crowd because i'm six four mm-hmm. um but also you know tattoos and piercings and i look intimidating like bald head mm-hmm. and a beard it's there are certain stereotypes that go with that too mm-hmm. that I, I don't care to be included in but it does happen yeah um I have had good old boys come up to me and kind of like hur, hur, hur. I'm like no no I put my sheets <laughs> think, on my bed not you. my head yeah <laughs> I would rather not <laughs> yeah so but that it's it's usually that for me my, my grandparents owned a farm and and so the country mentality the small town mentality and something my mother tells me, never forget where you're from. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I mean, I wasn't from there, but I grew up there. A lot of my work ethic, a lot of my ornery sense of humor 
comes from from that mm-hmm. and that kind of group ornery hardworking country feller is what i use to kind of get my get people into a comfort zone when i'm introduced into certain groups mm-hmm. but the problem is there's you know i'm also coming from a place of privilege where i am a heterosexual white male that's not everybody mm-hmm. so when you go into places that are more rural or cut off or even urban in certain certain areas mm-hmm. it, it is incredibly difficult for a lot of people who have an interest in understanding certain cultures whether it be music or food stories crafts mm-hmm. how do i get to go from outsider to insider how am i accepted mm-hmm. into your group um and it doesn't necessarily need to be fully but at least to the point where you can get some education learned Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always something I've been fascinated in. And what I, the reason I wanted to start this show was to show like, you know, we're all on this, in this journey together. We can all learn from each other. Appalachia is vast. There's thousands of cultures. It's not just white, Scottish, Irish, and German descendants. How can we learn? What can we do to get into these different groups and invite people into our group to share? Yeah. That was honestly, that was the reason I, I wanted to have you on just to mm-hmm. pick your brain on that. Cause it's, yeah. it's the big question and there may not be an answer, honestly. Mm-hmm. And that's something I, I think about that in terms of why I think folklore studies is so important to be taught in early, like I think intro to folk, like, and not just because I love it. I think intro to folklore could be taught in high schools. I think it should be taught as just like one of the core classes because it does give you that opportunity to step outside of what you know and step outside of your lived experience and be like, wow, look at all of this stuff that exists outside of me. And look at all of this stuff that I thought was really bizarre or that I thought was scary or that I hated or that I thought was offensive. Look at all of this stuff and let me set my immediate reaction aside and think now why are they doing that and I saw that my last my last class I taught before all of the lockdowns was my intro to folklore class um and I walked in there and I like was like pep talking myself like don't forget to tell them that you care about people dying don't forget to tell them that you care about people dying so I walked in I was like okay before we start class today I need to let you guys know that I know there's a pandemic I know that people are dying I know it's very serious and I do care I say this because I want you guys to not think I'm a monster when I get (laughs) really, really excited about all of this folklore that's happening right now. Yeah. And I had one student and she, uh, like one, like my one rule in class is no judgment. You can't judge folklore. You just can't do it. That's not what folklorists do. You're like, you are studying why people are doing it. You're studying the context around it. You're learning from it. And so one of my students, she said, She was like, I just can't take my scientist hat off and not just get frustrated by people being so stupid and irrational about all the things they're doing. They're buying all the toilet paper for no reason. And I was like, I need you to take that science hat and kick it the fuck out the room. (laughs) It's like, because you got to put your folklorist hat on and think about why people are buying all the toilet paper. (laughs) I do the same thing because I have a love of cryptozoology and paranormal, Mm -hmm. but I'm also very skeptical but I always have to put on my folklorist hat when Mm -hmm. I listen to those stories and say, I'm here for the story. Mm -hmm. Do I think this person saw fairies and I love fairies and fairy folklore, but do I think this person actually saw fairies? It doesn't matter. Exactly. I need to listen to the story. My bias, Mm -hmm. my opinion, we're here for the story. We're Mm -hmm. not here to judge. Yeah. Just shut down. We'll listen to the story and they're Mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Yeah, and there's so many interesting things. I mean, the I, one of my students was writing, was doing their folk narrative analysis on Bigfoot stories. And I was like, I mean, you could think about all of the fear that we have of the wilderness when you're looking at these legends. Like, you can look at all of the things that are happening behind the legend stories. And it's just so, it's so fascinating, all yeah, of the things that really we can is. learn. So getting into it, I had mentioned in the conversation we were having at your your folklore podcast lecture, about the third culture individual. Now, I am going to to use this phrase 
I've only ever heard it used on a podcast called the Pickle Shelf Radio Hour. For those of you who are not familiar, long story short, it is a farm-to-table farmer and chef who works in Appalachia and talks to people with different ethnic backgrounds, talks about their recipes and what indigenous vegetables they use to replace, or ingredients in general, use to replace the things that they can't get from their family's home country. And so the chefs that, that he interviews talk about being third culture individuals. And it's because they are the first generation born on American soil. So if they are from Spain or China, the family is from Spain or China, mom and dad. And they came here at some point, had children, and these children don't have any way of identifying, uh, or they, no, I shouldn't say they don't have a way, they have uh, find it difficult to identify as, let's say, Chinese or Spanish because they weren't born there. One of the chefs talks about how she doesn't feel like she fits in. And then they're not American because they look different, as shallow as that is. So I use the term third culture. And again, I apologize if that's something that's used for ethnicity, but I, I don't have a better phrase for it. From being a northerner, living half of my life up north and then living nearly 20 years in the south, but mm -hmm. never really feeling like one could fit in. I always feel like I'm just outside. I was born in Ohio. I live in North Carolina. I lived in Raleigh for, geez, for a very long time since 2005 and just recently moved out to the country because that's where I always felt more comfortable with that side of the family. So there's this in-between where I don't feel like I fit in one place, but I, and I do feel like I fit in another, but I'm accepted one place, but not accepted in another. And getting back to the idea of, of folk groups and folklore, using that as a way for people to feel comfortable or at least opening people's minds. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything there that you could, could speak to about that. Yeah. I think, I mean, one of the things that becomes really interesting when you start, when you start studying folk groups and you start engaging with that is that we are part of at any given point in our lives. We're part of so many different folk groups. I mean, we've got our friend groups, we've got our work groups, we've got our school groups, we've got our family groups, we have our regional groups, we have our national groups. We have so many different groups to which we belong to and that we like reside in simultaneously all the time. And I think a lot of the like insider outsider dynamics that we have, um, I mean, of course, a lot of it is because of deeply ingrained prejudices and biases that we have. I mean, the North and South divide yeah. of course is i mean their long history um that's informing a lot of that discomfort and not feeling like you belong or feeling like you're allowed to belong right but i think that what's missing from all of that is this recognition that we are so many different things all at one point just confined in our little human suits you know mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to if we study, if like, if we studied folklore in earnest and on mass, that like, maybe we would be able to see, like, look at all of these spaces that I engage in and look at all of these spaces other people engage in. And wouldn't it be so cool if I could learn about them and I could also welcome, welcome them into my spaces without all of that baggage that informs yeah. especially i mean in the in the u.s people from the north feeling like they don't belong in the south and people from the south feeling like they don't belong in the north they're like and but you know all of that yeah. i mean i i had mentioned in the lecture that when i was in louisiana i would point blank refuse to say y'all to my <laughs> students because i didn't feel like i was allowed to i'm like oh this this jerk from illinois is coming down here trying to say y'all this carpetbagger <laughs> <laughs> and so I was just like, I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to purposefully say you all, all of the time and not like intrude on my student space, trying to like fit in. But it's like such an odd thing to feel like any one person has to do because you can exist in multiple spaces and you do exist in multiple spaces all of the time. And yeah, I do like, I think that the dark side of folklore studies, I think that informs a lot of that discomfort that we have of belonging and not belonging because there are a lot of instances where you really aren't that safe if you welcome outsiders in because of all of the dark stuff that's under the surface of all of these mm -hmm. things that is our ability to relate to each other and then also our inability to relate to each other and like be able to exist in the same space together a lot of my experience here in the south has been 
I mean, I'm a very liberal-minded individual, obviously tattoos and piercings, Mm -hmm. but moving to a small town had its own, because I am liberally-minded, you can play stereotypes, and you can imagine the kind of things I would experience here. But I did put on my folklorist hat, my protective helmet, and, <laughs> and say like, no, these is they are free to believe and think and, and do what they they want as long as it doesn't harm anybody, right? Mm-hmm. And try to understand and try to connect to these folks who you might not agree with politically or religiously or however. Mm-hmm. Find some unifying entity or element, and then don't talk about the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And what I found it was just generally being kind and honest mm-hmm. in which I don't know if that's a, a folk group per se, the, the kind and honest folk group, <laughs> uh, but the, the Southern hospitality is an absolute, it is a stereotype that exists and it's one of the good ones. Mm-hmm. The folks here, when I moved in, were very kind. They, I was out raking leaves. They came over, shook my hand, said hello. And then we wave and that's all the interaction I ever have. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is when you are entering a group, that you do not understand, or you may have a bias towards to put on your honorary folklore hat mm-hmm. and understand that you may not agree, you may not disagree, but to be there to understand and to, you know, whether you're accepted or not into that group or you accept them or you don't, is to just take the bias out and try to understand. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I try to do every day of my life. It's like, we might not agree on this, that, or the other, but how can we understand? How can we make this a better situation for all of us? Mm-hmm. I, I would personally like to see more of that. Yeah. Uh, but that also gets back into social media too, as we were talking before. It's more beneficial for certain people in this country to have the black and white dichotomy. Mm-hmm. The in-group, out-group. The, instead of it being both and, it's either or. Mm-hmm. Because it's profitable. It's very hard to have that middle ground. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's it's better television. It's it's more money in pockets. It gets votes. It gets more listens, likes, or clicks or whatever, because yeah. I have an opinion that you might dis or agree with or disagree with instead mm-hmm. of coming to that middle ground and saying, Hey, you talk, I talk and, and let's figure things out. And that happens a lot. I mean, it happens a lot everywhere. I'll just be honest. It happens a lot yeah. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, um, the outrage machine of social media, especially is one of the things that, strikes me as super interesting in the way in which social media impacts the way folk group dynamics kind of play out right now, because what I, and I talked to my students about this in my comp classes, like what gets you clicking faster and faster and faster? Well, anger, one of the emotions that leads fastest to action is anger, right? Cause you're just like, I'm outraged. I have to do something. You have to do something now. And mm-hmm. then, like, and I mean, my God, the amount of money that people, social media companies make on, outrage is yeah. i mean in the billions it's incredible it's such an interesting moment to see like see how folk group dynamics are playing out in many different ways because so many of them so much of the conversation right now in certain certain political groups is just so much outrage and so much fear and so much anger against other groups and it's there's like the misinformation and disinformation that gets spread on social media it just becomes a really interesting space to think about like what can what can social media do to our ability to not relate to each other because that seems to be the space like largely where it's going but like you've said i mean you can curate the algorithm you can take control of what you're seeing because once you understand how it works and you know that it's calcu- like it's collecting data on how long you spend looking at a link, how like the amount mm-hmm. of time you're staring at things, the, how quickly you scroll through, like you can curate your own thing. So there is something, ha- there, like there is a need individually to stay in that space. Like yeah. one of the studies that I mentioned in the lecture is that the filter bubble effect is largely because the individual wants to be in the filter bubble. They want to be validated. They want their confirmation bias, like feed me my confirmation bias. Yeah. Then that makes, I mean, that just makes the in-group, out-group stuff, uh, in-group, out-group stuff, just like so much more like, no, it is insider, outsider. It's not that I exist in multiple spaces and multiple people exist in multiple spaces with me. And we could have so many interesting conversations about their lived experiences and my lived experiences and how we see the world and how we don't see the world. It turns into 
no, that's scary and I don't want to be around it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, what a loss that we suffer then because we can't yeah. have those cool conversations. I think the first time I taught intro to folklore was I was taught like one of the things it was it was when the okay boomer memes were super popular and so generational folk groups became a conversation and the okay boomer memes and it was like yeah no we bring these ideas of what these generations are like and then I mean we still see them there's a reels that keep popping up about this dude's like different generations in the workplace and he's got boomer gen x millennial and gen z and it's really interesting to see how he presents different generations but then when he gets to the millennial i'm like yeah fair (laughs) so it's an interesting kind of thing where it's like but you're stereotyping but there's a bit of truth to your stereotyping that you're doing because i recognize it yeah yeah um and so it's like like it's difficult because we see like all of those the generational memes that we see like the millennial stuff I'm like it always feels true but it's also there's also the other other stereotypes where I'm like come on man like let's calm down about yeah. us yeah. um so yeah there, I mean I think the power of stereotypes is that there's like a tiny grain of truth to them but then you can also take them and use them in very damaging ways right or very positive ways one of the good stereotypes i always work with is southern hospitality Mm -hmm. and the stick to your ribs food like it is a stereotype and it Mm -hmm. is positive and it is true which is why i won't leave the south because the food is too good the music (laughs) is good the people are nice the -hmm. weather is i mean it's nice but until you get humidity but thinking one example that i've had in my head with the in-group out-group and the biases is with sports culture Mm Because I had a really interesting, because like Nebraska, I mean, it's Husker Nation. They're like, so, they're so into it. And it was really interesting. Ohio and the Buckeyes. Yeah. And I was talking to one of my students and he, I mean, he's like diehard Huskers fan. And so I was asking, I was like, so am I allowed to be a Huskers fan? And he went, oh yeah, definitely. You can't like, we're totally welcoming fan base. And I was like, so at what point am I allowed to be uh, like, what if I, i just moved here. Like I've been here for a year. Am I allowed to call myself a Huskers fan? And I was like pushing him a little bit to be like, at what point can I call myself a Huskers fan? And at one point, and I said like, so can I get like the sweaters and like wear all of the Nebraska stuff? And he was like, well, no. <laughs> So he was like, initially like, yeah, welcome, come be fans. And then he was like, but no. So then (laughs) that idea of the culture and the folk group Mm -hmm. and that idea of acceptance into. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have like Husker culture Mm -hmm. and the folk groups of Husker fans. Yeah. And then, yeah. When are you accepted? Yeah. And I mean, it even moves even further into when am I accepted as a Nebraskan? Because there is like a lot of what people talk about in McCook who, and it's been interesting is that a lot of the people that I've connected with in the artistic community in McCook are not from McCook. And so like us as outsiders have been kind of forming this bond and then kind of slowly getting into McCook in that regard. So like Mm -hmm. we all bonded over, we needed to find community and we wanted to find friends, but we couldn't find it in the town. And now what I'm seeing is that other people who are like staple, like figureheads in the town, like I'm now on the arts council and it's because I got together with this group of outside, so-called outsiders. And now we're like, it's a weird, like we're entering the town space now and we're becoming part of McCook. And so it's like an interesting process of like, at what point do I, and I never really thought of myself as like a Louisiana person. I was just, I was living in Louisiana, but I didn't feel like a Louisianan. And it's the same kind of thing. I was there for seven years. See, in seven years, you'd figure you would. Yeah. You would feel that in in a bit in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, I I would feel like I am part of the culture, but, and it'll be interesting to see, especially noting like that Nebraska is not a plain state. Nebraska actually does feel like part of the Midwest. I wonder if like the transition will feel a little bit faster or not. But then on the opposite side of things, when I moved to England, my friend Ben called England. He was like, you just need to come back to your spiritual homeland. Like I felt so at home and so part of England, even when I didn't have friends in England, 
like when we were like I was still kind of like feeling trying like how do how do you make friends I don't know Mm. um but I always felt at home and and like when I go back to visit England I you know that sense when like you're gone for a long time and you come home and you like kind of sighing like "Ah, I'm home yeah when I go back to England I feel that and so it's really it's it's just so interesting the way and I wonder like if there's a little bit of like your internal sensibilities are part of it too or like you do you feel part of it do you feel not part of it like how does your and how does your identity fit within these spaces I guess it would be a level of comfort yeah yeah like and then on top that then you add on top of that all the outside influences and how people are perceiving you and whether they're welcoming you or not welcoming you so it'd be your own like self-identity and comfort Mm -hmm. and then how you ease your way into a particular folk group yeah and then into the larger culture Mm -hmm. perhaps yeah and that's something that the textbook that i use living folklore they talk about how you move in and out of different folk groups as they match who you perceive yourself to be and so like identity plays such a strong role in the way in which you feel part of or feel not part of and it plays a role in how long you stay in a specific folk group versus when you decide to exit out of different folk groups and so much of it has to do with your kind of your internal sensibilities and your internal sense of self sure I know uh Lynn McNeil mentions that too like you would tell a story to your friends different way you would tell a story to your coworkers, mm-hmm. as you would tell it to your family and so it's the same story, but it's different. And I guess it is that identity and that level of comfort and how you are perceived and accepted in that particular group and how they mm-hmm. do do the same to you. So mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's an endlessly interesting thing for me. And like I said, that's the reason I started the show was to to hopefully dive into and investigate more the idea of looking at a particular region as an outsider mm-hmm. who may never be accepted even if I move there and live there for the last 30 years of my life Mm -hmm. and (laughs) die and be buried in the mountains of Mm -hmm. of Appalachia I will still not be Appalachian but I can Mm -hmm. very well consider myself but would I be accepted yeah as that or would I always like a friend of mine told me a long time ago I will always be a damn Yankee no matter how long (laughs) I live in the south yeah you know I could die here in North Carolina and never be considered a Southerner. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to me. And and thank you for conversation tonight, looking into, well, why is that? Mm-hmm. How did that come to be? Well, I have a better idea of that. And I honestly hope that that question is never answered because it's just so, it's so interesting to me. I want to look at it, look at that mm-hmm. conundrum for as long as I possibly can and never have the answer because it makes me want to pursue information and education in various groups. And I feel comfortable here. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't feel like I'm threatened or I'm not safe. I love Mm -hmm. the South. If my family listens to this, I'm sorry, but I do, (laughs) I do love the South and I do love North Carolina. And the only other place I would move is into the mountains so I can have 50 acres and chase bears. And uh, I want to thank you for being here for sure. And thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Where can people find you? What are you doing? Uh, What are you writing? I just finished that lecture. So I'm having a little bit of a pause on writing, but I do have a couple of, a couple of story ideas that I've been farting with. I don't know if I mentioned before, I do have a few short stories that are published, uh, but people can find me on Twitter at Cassandra Pfeiffer. You take out the second A in Cassandra, um, <laughs> if that's any help. <laughs> um, but I'm on Twitter. Yeah, people can find me there. And then I've got my Twitter profile's got a link to my projects that I've done, my lectures, as well as my short stories that I've published. Sure, great. I'll definitely have that in the show notes. I wanted to ask you one final question because you do I have an interest in oral tradition. So I was wondering if you had a particular story that you enjoy usually my brain flatlines when i get questions i like do you know any stories and i'm like what's a story i've never heard of it yeah i don't know (laughs) i've never 
couldn't tell you any. Oh. There was actually, so in McCook, they have the Buffalo Common Storytelling Festival. And I may have to send it to you later as I figure out what it was called. But I went to this storytelling session and their theme this year was Western and Cowboy, which I wasn't super into, but I was just like, I'm going to go because I didn't get to go last year and it's going to be cool. But there was one story that they both told, but one of them did a spoken version and then the other one did a musical telling of the story. And it is about this cowboy who retired to be a donut chef. And it was really, really funny because like, it was basically like he was going to shoot you if you didn't eat your donut. <laughs> so, like, so I will, I will find that story and message it to you because I think that would be a really good one. Cause that was, it was, everybody was laughing when they were reading it. It was really good. And like listening to that session was super cool because I was expecting I mean I can't I went, went into it with my stereotypes of cowboys I'm like this is gonna be stupid I'm not really gonna enjoy it that much but I want to go because I haven't gotten to go to the Buffalo Storytelling Festival yet and then the one the the final group that was sharing and singing songs she was talking about how like the stories that they were sharing were so social in nature because when you are I'm not going to get the words, the like the terminology right, but when you're with, when you're on your cattle drives, you're trying not to lose your mind. So you got to mm -hmm. share stories around the campfire. And then she was talking about the streets of Laredo, which is in, like a variant of an Irish folktale, which is a variant of another story, like an African American story. And mm -hmm. it's like all these different versions of this one Irish story. And she was like, and it's because you see all of these different things meld together because really cattle driving was not desired work. And no. so people who were like in lower classes were the ones doing it and coming together and they were having all these traditions merged together. And I was just like, oh, this is fascinating. I love it so much. And then she was talking <laughs> about the influence of jazz on cowboys and it was... Wow really 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 cool but i'll find that donut maker story for you and send that it would to be you. wonderful that thank one you would very be much. really 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 good sure yeah once again thank you so much for being here all of her stuff's going to be in the show notes y'all can check that out and i'm glad you stopped by i really appreciate it yeah thank you so much sure once again thank you to my new folklore friend cassandra pfeiffer we had such a wonderful time talking for two hours goofing around about how Shakespeare's like Wes Anderson and she has some inappropriately named weeds growing in the backyard of her house. Just really, really good time. Really wonderful person. And she's always welcome back anytime she wants to pop on and nerd out about folklore. And as always, thank you for stopping by this month. I greatly appreciate it. If you do want to support the show, the link again is ko-fi.com slash appfolklorepod. And until next time, y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to rate and review this show on whatever platform you use, I'd be much obliged as it helps spread the word. You can email me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com and visit my website shows.acast.com slash afp. You can find me at appfolklorepod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find me on Mastodon at appfolklorepod at thefolklore.cafe. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the AFP cover art. You can find his work on Instagram at inkwellgraphicdesign. Thanks again for listening.